Hey everyone, before we get started, just want to give you a quick update on a new feature here at Black Box Down. New feature! You got it, Chris. Uh, if people go to blackboxdownpod.com, what do you think they can find, Chris? Uh, a website that has information about a new thing called Premium. There you go. <laughs> uh, it allows people to sign up for $2.99 a month and you get all of our episodes ad-free and 24 hours early before the general release. And on the bright side, you can keep listening in whatever podcast platform you already listen to. Pretty cool, right? Yes, it's very cool. Also, this is very helpful for us. I mean, help support the show and it helps make future episodes possible. It makes this help support our staff who make it possible. It helps Dennis. <laughs> <laughs> it helps all of us. But anyway, go check out blackboxdownpod.com. It's got a fact there. You can see all the information and learn everything. Yeah, so if you enjoy the show, please consider supporting us. This is a Rooster Teeth production. August 16th, 2005. West Caribbean Airways Flight 708, a McDonnell Douglas MD-82 with 160 people on board, is en route on a nighttime charter flight from Panama City, Panama to Fort de France in Martinique. The flight is at cruising altitude and vectoring around some storms and poor weather in the area. The captain notices that the plane is no longer accelerating, but doesn't think much of it. The crew goes about rather mundane tasks, and when descending from 33,000 feet to 31,000 feet, the plane loses power and begins falling from the sky. The captain reports that both plane engines have flamed out and that the plane is uncontrollable. Within just a couple of minutes, the plane slams into the ground over Venezuela, killing all on board. What caused the plane to lose power and crash? Find out on this episode of Black Box Down. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Black Box Down. It's Gus and Chris. Hello, Chris. Hello, Gus. Did I hear you gasping during the intro? Yeah. I'm curious why. Oh, we can get to this. They didn't glide. Couldn't they glide? Could they not glide? Uh, Yeah, and they did glide for a bit. It's not like they went straight down. You know, we kind of like shorten the uh, timeline of events when we do the intro like that. Mm -hmm. But I mean, they did continue gliding for a bit before, you know, ultimately colliding with the ground. It was pretty quick, though. It was only a couple of minutes. Yeah. They didn't stay up very long. Wow. Yeah, I don't know what the glide ratio on an MD82 is. I don't know how far they should have gone with that altitude, but you know they they had a few, they had a couple of minutes. Yeah, it was just okay. Well, we'll get to it, and we'll talk. We'll break it down. We will get to it. Before we get to it, as always, I want to remind everyone to give us a follow on social media at BlackBoxDownPod, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. We post supplemental stuff and uh, little tidbits uh, that you know maybe you're curious you think about and you don't know we, we can't show you in an audio podcast you can look it up online well all in one convenient place at black box down pod and youtube and youtube i was forgetting Where we have YouTube. animated black box down oh yeah aviation explanation you check those out it's fun you know what the cool thing about social media those who follow is we or i should say i posted asking for people if they would uh there were submissions for the quill podcast awards guess what we got oh yeah we got nominated for that got a nomination we? Thanks, thanks to people who uh, follow <laughs> us on social media and then uh, nominated us. Yeah. And you, Gus, got uh, best host. We were up for, yeah, best host of best nominate. 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 We'll nominate. Yeah. No nominated. <laughs> there you go. You got it. You got best host nomination. Yeah, we'll see. Well, I'm, 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 we'll, we'll see how the awards go. I think maybe by the time this episode comes out, those awards will be out. I don't know. But maybe. We'll see. But thank you. For those who follow us and uh, yeah. and nominated us, or big Gus. thank you, us big and Gus. We we need to come up with a term for our listeners. Big thank you to the flight crew, or I don't know, like, <laughs> <laughs> the flight crew. Yeah, yeah I don't, we we need to come up. With, uh, send us a message on social media, passengers. Maybe 
Let us know uh, what you think, uh, what y'all would like to be called. Yeah. But anyway, back to the subject at hand. We're talking about West Caribbean Airways Flight 708. Like we said, it was a charter flight from Panama City mm-hmm. to Fort de France in Martinique over the Caribbean back in August 16th, 2005. The flight was crewed by Captain Omar Ospina, who was 40 years old with 5,942 hours of flight time. And First Officer David Munoz, who was 21 years old with 1,341 hours of flight time. And this particular plane was a 19-year-old McDonnell Douglas MD-82 that operated with Continental Airlines until 2001 when it was then placed into storage in the California desert for four years. It was then purchased by MK Aviation. I'm sorry, did I say that weird? MK Aviation and leased to West Caribbean in January 2005. And there were six flight attendants and 152 passengers on board. So why would you put a plane in storage for four years? Why would it, like, why wouldn't you keep it in circulation? And then wouldn't that, like, cause problems to keep it in well, storage like that? Continental Airlines, I, I don't I don't know specifically why Continental did that, but in general, uh, most mm-hmm. likely they were phasing out this kind of plane or, you know, they didn't want to use this particular type of plane anymore. So mm-hmm. they probably just put it in storage. This is very common. Uh, there's storage facilities like this in the California desert and Arizona, like places where it may get hot, but there's not a lot of humidity. Oh, oh, that makes sense. Yeah, it's, it's, it's common. And then, you know, when they pull it out of storage, it's not like they roll it out of storage and then just immediately start putting yeah. people on it. You know, they they go through uh, maintenance and checks and make sure that it's still airworthy. Very common, very, very common thing to happen. I never thought about storing like mechanical things in places with low humidity. That That's, yeah. I don't know why. I mean, it's just, but that makes a lot of sense. Very common to, to store planes in the, uh, in the southwestern portion of the United States for that yeah. reason. May seem weird, but not that big a deal. They, you know, put it appropriately in storage and then, Someone else wants to use it so they can fly it. I am personally, as a passenger, who have, you know, mm-hmm. I've, I've done quite a bit of flying as a passenger in commercial aviation. I do not like the MD 82. I hate being a passenger on this plane. Why? It's just kind of cramped and old. Mm. So, and, and it, you know, like we said at the time this incident happened, it was 19 years old, which isn't super old for a plane. Yeah. But, you know, th- there are newer, more comfortable planes to, to, to fly. No way it had in-flight entertainment. No, it definitely did not. The MD-82 <laughs> is like an evolved version of the DC-9. It's like, you would recognize it if you saw it. It's, you know, a reg- kind of what you would consider like a regular size passenger plane, but yeah. the engines are not under the wing. They're at the back of the fuselage, like mm. kind of back by the tail uh, mounted on either side of the fuselage back there. It's a little unusual from that aspect. Kind of thick. Kind of thick. <laughs> like in the butt. <laughs> Chris, am I am I wrong? If a the butt of a plane, you know, like you said in the back, would that be right? It has some junk in the trunk, <laughs> and it is kind of in the trunk. Okay, anyway, sorry. Anyway, so this particular flight, seven oh eight, originally was supposed to depart from Panama City at ten fifty p.m. local time, but it had a two hour delay and ended up taking off at twelve fifty eight a.m. So almost one in the morning. Okay. The crew reached their cruising altitude of 31,000 feet at 1.26 a.m. and they were traveling at a speed of Mach 0.74, which is 493 knots, 567 miles an hour, or 913 kilometers an hour. At 1.33, which is a couple minutes later, the crew asked air traffic control to alter their path to avoid some storms. And six minutes later, they also requested clearance to 33,000 feet and began their climb 10 seconds later. So like I said earlier, some bad weather in the area, they're kind of trying to fly around it, and then they're climbing up from 31,000 mm-hmm. to 33,000 feet. Okay. The autopilot was in mock select mode, 
uh, was ordered to maintain a speed of Mach 0.75, so about the same speed that I just said that they were already at. The climb was interrupted twice, each time for about 20 seconds. First at 140 and 43 seconds at an altitude of 31,450 feet, and the second was uh, about a minute later at 141 and 50 seconds at an altitude of 32,300 feet. During both interruptions, the Mach speed stabilized, but dipped when the climb started again. So essentially, the mode that they're in, the plane's trying to maintain a speed and climb, but as uh-huh. it's climbing, the speed dips down, so it interrupts the climb, regains speed, and then starts climbing again. But it's able to come out of it, so it just stops? Yeah, it's, it's not like they lose speed entirely. It's just the speed dips, uh-huh. so the plane kind of levels out to gain more speed and then continues its climb. Okay. Six seconds after the second climb interruption, the autopilot was put in a vertical speed mode, and then the autothrottle mode changed to mock EPR limit mode. And we've talked about vertical speed mode before. It's where they dial in a specific vertical speed, and that's what they tell the autopilot to climb at. So they might say, I, I don't know what number they put in at this point, but they might say, mm-hmm. they might tell the autopilot, climb at 500 feet per minute. And then it doesn't worry about the speed. It's just going to climb at 500 feet per minute. Or I should say it doesn't worry about, yeah, it doesn't worry about the speed. It only worries about the vertical speed, about the climb or the descent. And it does that automatically, but it still maintains enough speed to keep it from falling, right? We've had incidents where that doesn't happen. <laughs> well, because it was it that it was it, it's that one time where the the pilots were doing kind of a joyride, trying to get as high as they wanted to. Yeah, they, they did. They did engage vertical speed mode there. Yes, and they were too high uh, for the vertical speed that they they input. That is correct. That was uh, in that episode. Okay. They also changed the auto throttle mode to mock EPR limit mode. And that means that the autothrottle is going to control the engine thrust to achieve and maintain the thrust rating selected by the pilots. So they also put in a thrust rating and then the autothrottle meets that and makes sure it keeps that thrust rating. Okay. Is it possible to, to do two types of autopilot or auto controls that are counter to, like, counter to each other where they don't work and function? That's a big question. I can't answer that with any certainty just because there's so many different types over so many different kinds of planes i i and i'm also never never flown a plane like that so (laughs) i don't know i I can't answer that however speaking to that Mm -hmm. in this particular instance the way that the autopilot and autothrottle are set up the mock value that they put is lower than the selected mock speed and the aircraft had already reached the maximum permissible thrust above which the protection of the engines could no longer be guaranteed so they're they're skirting around what you're asking they're kind of starting to ask the plane to do things that maybe are outside of its limitations. Oh, they should. Why? Just because. Well, I mean, I think that, you know, in this particular case, they, they were probably getting frustrated with the autopilot disconnecting during the climb because of the speed. So they're trying to kind of force it to get up to 33,000 feet. But is it disconnecting because you're, it's not supposed to do it? Is that what it's? It was disconnecting because the speed was dropping below what it wanted. You're asking good questions. I can't answer those without spoiling where we're going. (laughs) So you're on the right track, Chris. Okay. So while all this is going on, at about 142, the captain asked the first officer to disconnect the engine anti-ice systems. Ten seconds later, there was an EPR increase. Remember, EPR is the engine pressure ratio. It's a measure of the engine power. Uh And the average EPR value for each engine changed to slightly over 2.0. And when they run these anti-ice systems, it takes a little bit of power away from the engines to, to run the anti-ice. So that's probably why he asks for the anti-ice system to be turned off. That way they get a little more power and the engines can keep pushing them up to where they need to go. And it's the, the thing that keeps the engines from being iced? Correct. And it's, it's the anti-ice 
protection system. I believe it's in this particular plane, I believe it's not just the engines. I believe it also routes hot bleed air from the engines over the wings so that ice doesn't accumulate on the wings as well. And this is bad policy, right? Well, I'm going to talk about that in a second. Okay. But yeah, there is more, there is more to it than that. Typically, I'll, I'll talk about it. I, I want to answer your question, <laughs> but I'll talk about it more in a second. Okay. So at 143, the aircraft reached flight level 330 and accelerated mm-hmm. to a speed of Mach 0.7. Two minutes later, the captain said, I couldn't get it to accelerate. And then the first officer got up to go use the restroom. So they're maintaining their speed. It's just they can't go any faster. Uh-huh. At 1.46, the aircraft reached a speed of Mach 0.72, and the EPR increased to 2.02. Uh, about 46 seconds later, the angle of attack decreased to 2.9 degrees nose up, and the speed increased to Mach 0.73, and the aircraft remained in level flight at 33,000 feet. At 1.47 and 28 seconds, the aircraft reached the target speed of Mach 0.75, and the angle of attack decreased to 2.6 degrees nose up. So they've reached their altitude, they've reached mm-hmm. their speed, everything should be okay at this point. Okay. But again, at this point, the captain says, once again, I can't accelerate. At 148, with a speed of Mach 0.75, the autothrottle reduced thrust and changed the mode to maintain Mach speed. At 149, there were variations in the EPR values that probably indicated activations of the anti-ice systems and the speed began to decrease. The EPR values that were recorded at this time are consistent with the values when the anti-ice systems are turned on during cruise. I think I know. I bet I I could take a guess of what happened, but I don't want to yet. Take a guess. Why not? Okay. They turned off the anti-ice thing and the things that determine the speed, like the, the whatever, the meters, they get frozen over. And then so the autopilot think that they don't work and all the plane, like the plane's meters and stuff aren't working. And so they all like shut down and don't work. Or something like that. That's a good guess. We've had we've had episodes like that, right? Where I mean, it's def- it's definitely a real possibility. You 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 think about it. You know, they're flying through wet weather. Obviously, I said they're storms, mm-hmm. and they're flying so high that the temperature is really cold. So you would think if there's water and it's cold, it's going to make ice, right? Yeah, you definitely would want to keep the anti ice thing on. That's just uh, me. So normally, what they would do <laughs> is. Well, they're going to have a discussion about it. I'm going to read a, a transcript mm-hmm. in just a few seconds that'll answer that. Uh, I don't want to say whether you're right or wrong yet, but good guess. So the auto throttle at this point is then put back into mock EPR mode, but the speed continues to decrease. Shortly after this, the first officer began changing frequencies between different controllers and food was served to the flight crew. Mm-hmm. At 151, the crew were given a navigation direction by air traffic control. And the mock speed continued to decrease and the autopilot began compensating the stabilizer trim in order to maintain altitude. So they're getting slower and the trim is being adjusted so that they don't go down. They need to maintain that altitude that they're at. Just before 152, the first officer asked, shall I turn it on, Captain? Suggesting that the anti-ice system should be turned on. Mm -hmm. The recorded EPR values then coincided with crews without the anti-ice system turned on. A minute later, the captain asked whether there was any icing and the first officer said no. He asked if there is any icing? Yes. And the first officer says no. How does he know? Normally what they would do, you know, it's dark, right? They can't really see. Uh Normally what they do is they have a little flashlight and they'll shine it in the corner of the window that they look out of and they see if there's ice accumulated there. Must be a strong flashlight. Oh, they just, I mean, it's like, it's just on the windowsill. Oh. Right. They just have, they're they're not looking back at the wing. They're just looking at the window itself to see if there's ice right there. (laughs) No, no, no. It's just that, no, no, I'm glad you said that because that makes me reinforce it. It's like that little corner, you know, of the window that they can look out of. They're looking at the windowsill itself to see if there's ice accumulated right there. Got it. Okay. 
because if there's ice there, there's probably ice on the wing. That, that, that's just yeah. the way that they would figure it out. So while this is going on, the Mach speed fell to Mach 0.69. And at 1.53, there were variations in the EPR that indicated further activation of the anti-ice systems. The first officer then asked, why, Captain, is there icing on the airfoils? Two seconds later, indications suggest that the airfoil anti-ice system were connected and the speed dropped to Mach 0.68. The captain then asked a question that's kind of unintelligible on the CVR. He asks, is the engine airfoil something certain? And the first officer responded with affirmative. Two minutes later at 155, the speed fell to Mach 0.65 and the angle of attack reached 5.8 degrees nose up. And the captain made a comment saying, what lousy weather, mate. At 156, the angle of attack reached 6.5 degrees nose up and the speed decreased to Mach 0.63. At 157, the speed fell to Mach 0.62 and the angle of attack reached 7.2 degrees. You see what's happening here? The plane's slowing down and it keeps nosing up more and more. Because of the autopilot? Right, because it's trying to maintain the altitude that they're at. So it's going slower. So the plane wants to go down because there's less lift. So it just keeps nosing up as well to try to maintain that same altitude that they're at okay at this time the first officer asked air traffic control for clearance to descend to thirty-one thousand feet uh, a few seconds later the captain disengaged the autopilot while the speed was at mach 0.6 and the angle of attack was at 7.7 degrees the aircraft then began to descend at mach 0.6 which is about 400 knots which is 460 miles an hour or 741 kilometers an hour okay at 157 and 23 seconds, there was an altitude alert aural warning that indicated the selected altitude was not being maintained. Three seconds later, the captain said to the first officer, give me 310. At 157 and 44 seconds, while the aircraft was at 31,700 feet and descending at a rate of 2,500 feet per minute, the mm-hmm. EPR value fell sharply to 1.8. E- EPR? The engine pressure ratio. It's the, um, the measure of the, for- of the thrust that the engines are giving. Okay, so... That's just how, how much inertia is being created? Like uh, How much thrust, I would say. Thrust? thrust. Yeah. yeah, I don't know physics. <laughs> uh, but so it's just like, so it's not how, how fast you're going, but just how much it's pushing. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And at the same time that the EPR value fell, the stick shaker activated, which is followed by oral stall warnings. And we know the stick shaker normally shakes when you're about to mm-hmm. stall. That's like a, a physical vibration, a physical warning that the pilots can feel. How fast are they going right now? Well, they, when they were at Mach 0.6, it's about 460 miles an hour or 741 kilometers an hour. Then over the next 10 seconds, the EPR mm-hmm. value fell from 1.89 to 1.16. So it really fell significantly. And the stabilizer trim started to gradually increase until the maximum nose-up value was reached. So they're not getting much thrust and the stabilizer trim is nosing them up. Yeah, which is... Making them slow down more. Right. The angle of attack affected the amount of air going into the engines, causing the reduction in the EPR. So they're kind of nosed up and they're not getting much thrust. And the fact that they're nosed up so much it's means compounding. That the, right. The air's mm. not going smoothly into the engine. It's, you know, getting yeah. getting disturbed. So it's not they're not getting as much thrust as they should be. And there's two factors. The in, they're not getting enough thrust and the nosing up is doing it, right? Correct. Well, the, the, and they're contributing to each other. Yeah. <laughs> it's like two factors and they're making each other worse. At 158, the first officer started telling the captain that they were going to stall. Yeah. At the request of the captain, the first officer told air traffic control they were continuing the descent down to 29,000 feet. What? If he said they're descending down to 26,000 feet, why are they nosing up still? He could be pulling back. If I had to, like based on everything that you've heard so far, the assumption uh-huh. would be 
that the captain is pulling back on the stick. So Why? they're pulling back, but they're still descending. Because it's that thing where the plane's going down, but you want it to go up, so you pull back. Even oh, though, but I thought he, I thought he, I thought they wanted to descend down. Right, but they they wanted to descend to thirty one thousand. But now, like they're descending oh, even, yeah, they're descending below that now. So he wants to go back up, correct, okay, to thirty one. Okay, and the descent rate was approaching five thousand feet per minute at this point, and their speed is still dropping. They hit Mach 0.5, which is three hundred thirty three knots or three hundred eighty three miles an hour or six hundred seventeen kilometers an hour. You said the first officer said, hey, we're going to stall, but he kept, he's like, no, I want to get back up to 31,000 feet, essentially. Is that, that's exactly the first officer's telling him we're going to stall. And the captain is kind of like shutting down. It's, it, it, I, I know it seems like it makes sense, right? Like when you sit here and you talk about it and you think, yeah, oh, well, if they're going to stall, they should just nose down like the stick shaker is activating. But in yeah. the moment, you know, if someone's scared or not thinking clearly, they're like, oh, we need to climb. That we're too low, and they they they're just pulling back, even though that's the wrong thing to do. Mm-hmm. And then pulling back, you know, disturbs the airflow over the wing. It's also disturbing the airflow being ingested to the engine, so they're not getting lift. They're not getting thrust. Yeah. It's just it's 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 frustrating because it's so easily correctable. Yeah. There's also speculation here at this point uh-huh. that you know they were getting slow at thirty three thousand feet. Remember initially I said they were going to descend to thirty one thousand feet, and yeah. then their EPR value fell. There's also speculation that they probably got hit by an updraft and that's what started this. Like they oh. were very they were probably very precarious in a very in a very precarious position with their power and their speed and uh-huh. they probably got hit by an updraft which initiated the disturbance of the airflow into the engine which caused the EPR to fall and which also disrupted the airflow over their wings which is what probably initiated the stall and then things just got worse from there. Like the wind was blowing up or like pushing the plane higher correct to hit them from below nosing the plane up correct okay nosing the plane up and also simultaneously disturbing the airflow into the engine yeah so basically everything that's happening right now but it was like happened naturally yes exactly this episode of black box down is brought to you by green chef green chef is a ccof certified meal kit company they make eating well easy with plants to fit every lifestyle, whether you're keto, paleo, vegan, vegetarian, gluten-free, or just looking to eat more balanced meals, Green Chef offers a variety of recipes to suit your preferences. With fresh produce, premium proteins, organic ingredients you can trust, Green Chef is the number one meal kit for eating well. Green Chef's vegan and vegetarian recipes are full of plant-based proteins and wholesome sides, if that's something you're looking for. And whether you're looking for carb-conscious, gluten-free, plant-based, or calorie-conscious options, you just want to have delicious, balanced dishes, Green Chef has flavorful, Good for you recipes that are sure to satisfy. Green Chef is now owned by HelloFresh with a wider array of meal plans to choose from. There's something for everyone. I love switching between the brands. And now our listeners can enjoy both brands at a discount with us. And if you'd like to try it out and get $130 off, just go to greenchef.com slash blackboxdown130. Use code blackboxdown130 to get $130 off plus free shipping. Again, don't forget, that's greenchef.com slash blackboxdown130. Use code blackboxdown130 to get $130 off plus free shipping. Why not? Go do it right now. Big thanks to Green Chef, the number one meal kit for eating well. This episode of Black Box Down is brought to you by Electric E-Bikes. We all love riding bikes, right? It's fun. I mean, you, you learn how to ride a bike when you're a kid and you continue to know how to ride a bike throughout your adult life. But eventually, well, me personally, I reached a point where I was like, oh, you know, I love riding a bike, but... I'll, I'll admit it. I'm I'm a little lazy. <laughs> Sometimes, like, eh, you know, it's it's a uh, it's a little inconvenient to take a bike there. It's a lot of work. That's where e-bikes come in. They're great. They really help it, make it a lot easier to get around on a bike and still enjoy that feeling of riding around on a bicycle. 
Finally, there's an e-bike made for everyone, electric e-bikes. They started just $999. They're the fastest growing e-bike company in the US. It's easy to see why. Electric bikes are affordable, customizable. They ship free, fully assembled. Plus they quickly fold in half. No bike rack or truck required. Leave the car at home, save on gas, save the planet when you explore and commute on electric e-bikes. I've been enjoying, I, I got one of these electric e-bikes. I've been really enjoying it. I find myself anywhere like around me, if I'm picking up food or just like want to run to the convenience store or, or any store that's like really, you know, within a couple miles of my house, I'm always like, yeah, I'm just going to take the bike. And lots of times I find it's faster than driving there, believe it or not. You know, don't have to worry about parking, just roll on up, lock your bike to the bike rack outside and get whatever you need done. Plus, honestly, it was super easy to put together. Like the ad said, it's fully assembled. It, it's just like folded in the box. You just unfold it and you can use it. And then if you want to put it in, in your car to go somewhere, just fold it back up. It's super simple to do. It's like one latch. Uh, it couldn't be easier. So Electric's mission is simple. Make e-bikes accessible for everyone. They're surprisingly affordable, starting at just $999. It's way less than the competition. They're adjustable and customizable, so they're comfortable even for people who normally don't ride bikes. Like I said, they fold up, they ship free, they come pre-assembled and pre-charged, get on the road in no time. The battery's hidden away in the frame of the bike. It's a little LCD display that shows your speed, your range, you can adjust your power level. Super, super easy to use. You can cover up to 45 miles at up to 28 miles per hour on just a four to six hour charge. That's some serious range going pretty fast. It's unbelievable. It's so awesome, so fun. Way more eco-friendly than driving a car. You can explore the great outdoors or like I do, the city, keep <laughs> get, running any errands in your area you need to take care of. Or, I mean, you go further up to four, you know 45 miles. So join the affordable e-bike revolution. Go to electricbikes.com. Use code BLACKBOXDOWN to get a free foldable mountable bike lock with any bike purchase. That's a free bike lock when you use code BLACKBOXDOWN at L-E-C-T-R-I-C-E-B-I-K-E-S.com. Cryptocurrency might feel like a secret or exclusive club, but Coinbase believes that everyone everywhere should be able to get in the door. Whether you've been trading for years or just getting started, Coinbase can help. Coinbase offers trusted, easy-to-use platform to buy, sell, and spend cryptocurrency. They support the most popular digital currencies on the market, make them accessible to everyone. They offer portfolio management and protection, learning resources, and a mobile app so you can trade securely and monitor your crypto all in one place. Millions of people in over 100 countries trust Coinbase with their digital assets. Whether you're looking to diversify or just getting started, searching for a better way to access crypto markets, start today with Coinbase. Personally, I love the mobile app. I'm always using it. I love checking up on any crypto holdings that I have and seeing how they're doing. And it's super simple to use, super fast. Couldn't be easier. So for a limited time, new users can get $10 in free Bitcoin when you sign up today at coinbase.com slash blackboxdown. Sign up at coinbase.com slash blackboxdown for $10 in free Bitcoin. This offers for a limited time only, so be sure to sign up today. That's coinbase.com slash blackboxdown. So the EPR value continued to drop. Their descent rate increased to 5,500 feet per minute. The first officer contacted air traffic control and said they were continuing their descent down to 24,000 feet. The controller asked if there was any problem, and the first officer replied saying they had suffered a flame out on both engines. Are the engines actually flamed out right now? Are they not I'll running? give you a little spoiler. No, they're not flamed out. Oh. Their EPR values have fallen, which is why they think that mm -hmm. there's a flame out. But re in reality, the engines just aren't getting appropriate airflow. Yeah. So the controller cleared them to descend. Well, well, at what their own attitude? Sorry. What attitude are they at? Like their pitch up? What, what, what is it? I don't know what it's at at this moment. The last pitch information I had was about just under eight degrees nose up. So it's not like they're extremely nose up, but they are, they are still nose up. So the EPR at this point was between 1.04 and 1.1, and the descent rate was approaching 7,000 feet a minute. At 159, the first officer asked the controller for a minimum en route altitude 
at the request of the captain. The controller asked for their position and distance from Puerto Cabello, but the first officer replied with negative. The air traffic controller they're talking to doesn't have radar. So that's why they're asking, well, where are you? Mm Mm-hmm. The controller asked again for a position reference in relation to a couple of different locations. Yeah. But the first officer again replied with negative. I mean, they really don't know where they're at specifically either or precisely. Are they close to the airport at this point at all? Oh, they don't know. They're just over Venezuela as far as they know. And they're supposed to continue on. They're going to Martinique. They're going to an island out in the Caribbean. So no, they're not close to their destination. So now at this point, they go ahead and disengage the autothrottle system and the EPR values increase to 1.8. The captain then told the first officer to report that the aircraft was out of control. And at this point, the descent rate was 12,000 feet per minute. And they were at an altitude of 12,400 feet. So they've got, at that rate, they've got about a minute to figure things out before they hit the ground. Wow. Well, less than a minute because they need time to recover. At two o'clock, the first officer repeated the aircraft was out of control. The EPR value was now 1.88 and the position of the elevator trim was 10.8 degrees nose up. So they're 10 degrees pointed up. Yeah, well, almost 11 degrees pointed up. Uh-huh. But yeah, uh, and with the EPR value of 1.88, like their engines are really going. But their speed was Mach 0.38, which is 253 knots or 291 miles an hour or 468 kilometers an hour. And they're supposed to be at like, I remember miles per hour, they were at like 500 before, five or 600. Yeah, they should be at a much faster speed. Yeah. So yeah, they should be going much faster. But even though the engines are giving a lot of thrust... They're pointed too far up. They should be leveled out or nose down in order to build airspeed so that they can get yeah. more lift and then recover. What are they saying in the in the cockpit during all this? Are they because the first officer seemed like he knew what was up? Not them. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I don't know exactly what was going on. I don't have the cockpit, the entire cockpit voice recorder in okay. front of me, but I know that you know they don't know their position and they're just messing around with trying to see what they can do. I believe that the captain, you know, if they're at 10.8 degrees nose up, you know, the trim is still trying to nose them up and the captain's probably also pulling back on the yoke at this point, trying to get the plane to climb. And they, like I said, the captain is under the impression that the airplane is out of control. Yeah, and that the engines are just out is what he thinks. They should have started their checklist, right? They should have done a checklist most likely or just listen to the stick shaker because like I said, the stick shaker is still going off. The altitude alert starts going off. The stall warning's going off. The ground proximity warning system, you know, is sounding. Yeah. If they did think the engines were out, then they should restart them, right? I mean, that would be if they weren't even doing that, right? Yeah. I mean, you're, you're right. They should have, you know, run some kind of check. But I mean, I'm not even going to get that far with them because they're it's, they're obviously stalling. The stick shaker's going off and they're not nosing down. You know, they're not yeah. trying to increase their airspeed. So they're not even taking pre-step one at this point and that's what whenever at the very beginning i was like well couldn't why didn't they just glide right there's even there should even be like an appropriate speed that they glide at in order to like maximize their distance like they're not even trying to to do that so i don't know i I can't answer your question so the last recordings were made at two o'clock and 22 seconds with the altitude being 3105 feet and the elevator trim 12.5 degrees nose up the aircraft crashed belly first and exploded, killing everyone on board in Venezuela about 19 miles from the Colombian border. So, like we said, you know, it belly flopped. It was nose up. They weren't nosing down. You know, they, they were still trying to... Well, the elevator trim, and I assume the captain was also pulling back, trying to get the plane to climb. It's It seems super preventable. Yeah. Unless you got some secrets. You know, it's super preventable. So this, this is going to be a weird investigation because, mm-hmm. like I said, it was a plane that left Panama bound for Martinique that crashed in Venezuela close to the Colombian border. <laughs> and it was a U.S.-made aircraft. So <laughs> there's a lot of 
agencies and a lot of people vying to be involved in this investigation, right? But it did crash in Venezuela, so the investigation itself was carried out by the Air Accident Investigation Committee of Venezuela. And they discovered that during the climb to 33,000 feet with the anti-ice system turned on, the aircraft was outside of its performance limitations. Like they're pushing it too hard. Right. The weight of the aircraft, along with the use of the anti-ice systems, reduced the aircraft's ceiling by 3,000 feet. So they should not have gone above 30,000 feet. So to avoid the storms, they should have gone dipped instead of gone up? Maybe. Yeah, they should have considered 30,000 feet their ceiling, Mm. not 33,000 feet, because the plane was just too heavy and with anti-icing systems, like they just couldn't get that high. You said they were trying to get to 33, but they were already at 31. Yeah, they were at 31, then they climbed up to 33 briefly. Mm. So even even 31,000 was too high. And using the ice protection systems restrict the power of the engines. And, you know, of course, it says that in the airplane flight manual. And when the flight crew changed from mock hold to vertical speed mode, Uh, It's assumed they did this at a rate of 500 feet per minute. And as they passed 32,000 feet, the captain suggested they turn off the anti-ice system. And remember, I said the EPR increased when they did that. But the autothrottle changed to mock EPR limit, which meant that the current mock speed, which at the time was 0.72, was less than the selected speed because the autothrottles were trying to increase speed to match the desired mock speed, but the selected power was at its limit. So basically, they were telling the autothrottle to maintain a mock EPR limit at their current speed, but the current speed was less than the selected speed. It's like trying to tell your cruise control, hey, we're going 40 miles an hour, but I want you set to 60, but don't go faster than 40. Wait. It's like, it's like it doesn't make, it's like you're asking something that doesn't make sense. It's not possible. It's just, yeah. it's just like a logic bomb. It's like, well, you can't do this. It doesn't make sense. Does not compute like, oh. So what happens then? I guess, who wins? i don't know i can't answer you i can't answer that but that that's kind of what's going on there's just like things that you're asking very complicated systems to do things that are contrary to each other okay so kind of what i asked earlier yeah yeah but not no not exactly but yeah you know very 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 similar in that vein yeah so the aircraft could not maintain the selected mock speed in the climb uh, and at the time the altitude was thirty-two thousand two hundred feet when flight level 330 was reached, the autothrottle system was left in mock ATL mode during acceleration to mock 0.76, which was the speed they had selected. The power was maintained at max climb on the thrust rating indicator, which resulted in the aircraft accelerating to the desired mock number, and then the autothrottle reverted to mock hold. So they gave it max climb, it was able to accelerate up to its target speed, and then it reverts mm-hmm. to like holding that speed. The EPR reading was between 2.0 and 2.05. At that time, the flight crew presumably manually selected max cruise on the thrust rating indicator. So they're giving it like a lot of power, like max cruise uh, on the thrust, just to maintain this speed uh, at this altitude. And the EPR reading then fell to values between 1.8 and 1.9 with the ice protection system deactivated. When the airspeed began to drop, the plane Mm -hmm. was already delivering maximum thrust. Like I said, they were already giving it max cruise thrust, but the airspeed still was, was dropping regardless. The power was less than that required for the flight level, so the plane started losing speed. Like we said, you know, I kept saying the Mach speed kept going down. But the plane was in altitude hold mode, so it started to increase the pitch angle to maintain the altitude. So it's slowing down, so it needs to pitch up more, which causes it to slow down, so it needs to pitch up more, which causes it to slow down, so it needs to pitch up more. Yeah. You know, I mean, you see where that, what happens. Yeah, yeah. There's this concept it's it's difficult to comprehend uh-huh. but the aircraft had entered this zone that's known as being behind the power curve so if you were to graph out there's you know sounds like just me and gym class 
<laughs> you, you and me both, Chris. <laughs> so if you were to graph out the power required at that altitude for the plane to maintain a certain speed, there's uh-huh. a sweet spot. There's yeah. a sweet spot, I think, uh, at about 256 knots, where that, if they maintain 256 knots, that's the most optimal with the least amount of thrust required by their engine. If they go any slower, it doesn't make any sense. But if they go any slower, it requires more thrust from their engines. I get it because there's like this equilibrium of like they're getting enough wind to go through. Yeah. Right. To give it enough th- lift and and throw. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, it's it, it. Yeah, it can it can be difficult to wrap your head around, but it's like. This is the this is the most efficient speed. If you want to go faster, you need more power. If you want to go slower, you need more power. Yeah. Even driving around, it's like there's a speed and an acceleration that you can hit where you're like back. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, My car has a thing where where it's like a little green light comes on that says you're being efficient. <laughs> oh, yeah. You fuel efficiency. That's a good way to think about it. But in yeah. this case, it's thrust. Thrust efficiency. Mm-hmm. So they're behind the power curve. And the only way to get out of this is to descend. It's like to nose down in order to increase power because they can't give it more thrust because they're already at max cruise thrust. However, during this phase, they were preoccupied because they were having their meals delivered to them and they were talking with air traffic control. Oh, no. Remember I said that all this is going on. So uh-huh. they were distracted and this contributed to them not noticing the change of mode and the aircraft's gradual loss of speed, which resulted mm-hmm. in their losing situational awareness because they were not taking proper account of the changes that were happening in attitude and performance and what was going on with the plane should you on just a commercial flight like, should you ever be pushing a plane to its limit like i mean you should never be like yes go as hard as you can can't should you probably not no <laughs> unless there's a good reason for it like they're, they're, you're right Th- these are indications that something's not right and in this case they were higher than they should have been right like we said yeah. the plane should have been at a lower altitude get a little more oxygen into the engines a little more lift under the wing yeah, th- these are indications that something's wrong. Yeah, I mean, does that, though, I mean, just on, gen- on a normal flight, do, do they ever have a plane go to its max engine generally? I mean, I mean, you know, in general, it happens, but to keep it sustained, I'm going to say that's unusual. Yeah, because it'd be really inefficient. Yeah, and, right? you know, you're really running the, the engine hard, hard, you know, you, yeah, yeah you want to let off a little bit. It's like when you accelerate or you're driving, you don't constantly mash the accelerator down as far Mm -hmm. as it goes and then let go. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So they continue to keep the aircraft at a flight level, which, you know, according to the performance tables and graphs, it should not have been at. They should have been lower. And at one point, you know, the captain maybe starts to get an inkling of this, remember, because he wants to descend to 31,000. And, you know, he disengages the autopilot. But as they're descending and surpassing through 31,700 feet, he pulls back on the control column. And it's thought that at this point, his intention was to stabilize the aircraft at that level. At 31? At 31,700. You know, when they were transitioning from 33,000 to 31,000. And, you know, it's hard to say why he did that. It's Like I said, it's speculated maybe there was a uh, like an updraft. Maybe there was some buffeting over the, the wings because the aircraft was about to stall. Uh-huh. Whatever the reason, it pitched up to about 7.5 degrees nose up. And then that's when the stall warning started. And then that's when they started losing their EPR value in their engines. And, you know, they, it's in the report, they speculate the loss of power is probably because of the variation of the input airflow, which is what I mentioned, like turbulent air is going into the engine now. It's not as smooth mm-hmm. because of the steep angle of attack, possibly because of an updraft. And it's assumed 
based on the information from the cockpit voice recorder that the captain was focusing on the instrument indications for the engine, even when the first officer said the aircraft was stalling. So, you know, the first officer saying we're going to stall, but the captain is just staring at the engine information on his instruments and he sees the, the thrust, the EPR go down. So that's why he's obsessed with, oh, we have a flame out. Mm, so he's just preoccupied with the engine. But OK, this is going backwards. How do they not know what f- how high to fly that plane? Like, is it not written? Is it not? It should be like on the dashboard. <laughs> like, don't like don't go this high. Like, right. I mean, well, in this case, that? it's not like a set number. It varies depending on the, the aircraft's weight. OK. And if you want to get into the nitty gritty, this plane was probably heavier than they thought it was. Oh. Which is also why, remember I said initially they were cruising at 31,000, then they climbed to 33,000. The reason that uh-huh. they waited for that climb is they needed to burn fuel to get the weight down in order to be able, oh. to, in their mind, to go up. But the plane was heavier to begin with than they thought. So that's yeah. why they started having trouble. When I said, it is a thick plane, you this is It is. So... Like we said, the aircraft continued to descend, mm-hmm. and because of the inappropriate action taken, you know, they were increasing the nose-up angle, the aircraft's drag increased, at which point recovery was impossible given the remaining altitude. The airplane had entered, you know, what's called a deep stall, and we've talked about these before, but these happen on certain aircraft that have, like, what they call a T-tail configuration, and the MD-82 uh-huh. has this, where the horizontal stabilizers are, like, at the top of the vertical stabilizer. And what will happen is... It, the stall is so bad, like a like a like a, uh, a capital T. Yes, exactly. Like normally, you think <laughs> of it like a uh-huh. the horizontal stabilizer at the bottom, at the base of the of the yeah. tail. But in this case, they're at the top, like a capital T. And what will happen is the wings disrupt the airflow so badly that the air is not even really hitting those horizontal stabilizers, which further oh. exacerbates the the stall. And so it's it's just not recoverable at this point. Like it's just they got too low to a point where it wasn't recoverable. Mm. If they had initiated recovery at cruising altitude or at a high enough altitude, yeah, you know they these have to nose down, get the airflow smooth again, you know, reduce below the critical angle of attack, and then they can fly out of it. But at this point, when, when it, they were what, how many feet up? Well, what what the report is saying is that they just reached an altitude where it was no longer possible. Mm. They just didn't perform recovery in time. Yeah, and then during the descent. No emergency warning was given to air traffic controller, nor was any mention made that the flight crew was going through their checklist, which is what you said. Like, why didn't they go through Mm. the checklist? There's no indication that they looked at their checklists. So at this point, you think it's easy to say this is entirely the pilot's fault, right? Like, or the captain, because the the first officer said, you know, there was a stall. Yeah. It seems like mostly his fault. Right. However, Mm. I I will say some things um, to share. Let's let's spread the blame around a little. (laughs) (laughs) The board also found there were serious issues with this airline that contributed to the crash. Oh? At the time of the accident, the airline was having financial problems, which affected its operations. I mean, they were buying desert planes. True. I mean, not that inherently there's anything wrong with it, like you said, but... You know how I said that they were delayed for two hours on their takeoff Uh from Panama City? It's because they couldn't pay for their fuel. What? Yeah, they had to figure out how to finish paying for the gas that they were using that's why they couldn't take off. That was the source of their two-hour delay. Oh, my. How? Right. So that's just indicative of how bad shape this airline is in at this point. Is there like a credit? Is it like a gas pump, a credit card a credit card <laughs> declined? Like what? Or or was the, the airport like, nah, now nah, you got to pay your debts? <laughs> that's probably what it was. They probably had racked up some, some bills and they needed to pay them. Oh, my. The aircraft involved was the last of the MD-80 series that the airline owned. And just five months earlier... They had an accident where a smaller plane had crashed on takeoff due to an engine flame out. 
In 2005, the airline was sanctioned twice by the Colombian Civil Aeronautical Authority, once for an excess weight of 1,652 kilograms on a flight, and once when an annual inspection revealed infringements on crew rest hours, flying time, and leave periods, failure to provide crew with regulation training, and inconsistencies in aircraft records and flight documents. They're pushing the crew too hard. Yeah. Just like their plane. Yeah. Um, so to make matters worse, it turns out uh-huh. that they pushed their crew so hard that neither pilot had been paid for the previous six months. What? Yeah. The captain was moonlighting as a bartender to pay his bills. Oh, my God. So what? And they just kept flying? Like, how does... How do you go that long without getting paid? I don't I don't know. They probably were hoping that, you know, the airline was going to figure it out and give them their back pay. And that's probably why they stuck around. It's like, well, they already owe me six months of pay. What am I going to do? Oh, the sunk costs. Right. It's like a sunk cost fallacy. The committee notes, you know, that not getting paid was affecting their egos. It was causing frustration. Uh-huh. They had yeah. unstable working relationship. Well, if he was moonlighting as a bartender, that means he probably wasn't sleeping enough. Exactly. Neither of the pilots had CRM training. They lack sufficient emergency training and experience in this aircraft. It's just a big problem all around, right? I I, I believe the crew resource management training or lack thereof because of right. how they weren't listening, didn't communicate. Yeah. Yeah. They had poor communication, uh, no memory items, no checklist. It was just bad. Everything Gus loves. Yeah. Oh God. <laughs> Everything I love about aviation. And the diminished state of alertness, which resulted from fatigue caused by the delay in flight. Uh, mm-hmm. Remember, because it's also nighttime. Oh, yeah, because it didn't take off till one. Right. The state of professional instability, uncertainty of the crew, and certain factors which distracted their attention during the flight. Bet the meal was bad, too. <laughs> it might have been. <laughs> so all of this contributes to loss of situational awareness, right, when this is going yeah. on. They've just got so many mm-hmm. distractors and so many other things going on that there maybe they're thinking about that distracts them from the issue at hand. Yeah. So I've got some findings here. The aircraft followed the route laid down in the flight plan with a few minor deviations owing to bad weather in the upper airways, mm-hmm. which should be expected. Okay. Use of the anti-ice system resulted in a reduction of the engine pressure ratio, which in the given performance conditions, owing to the inappropriate configuration of the autothrottle system in EPR limit cruise mode, affected the aircraft's power status, causing a gradual decrease in flying speed. This caused the aircraft to fly behind the power curve, in which situation the thrust required by the aircraft to maintain its speed was greater than that which was producing. So all this is to say they weren't getting as much power as they should have. Then the anti-icing helped rob it as well. And then, like I said, they fell behind the power curve, to which the only way to escape is to nose down and increase your speed. Wait, so so you said the anti-icing robbed them, but you said they turned it off. Yeah, they kept turning it off and on, but eventually they turned it on at one point, and that's what also started losing oh, or okay. taking away some of their power. They kept messing yeah. with it. I, th- I think secretly in his mind, the captain knew that they needed. That's why he kept telling him to turn it on and off. I think mm. in the back of his mind, the captain knew that it was you know the, the power was being diverted to anti ice systems. Yeah, so he he knew that they needed it, so he sw- uh, let it warm up for a bit and turn it because he's I, trying- I think if I had to guess, yes, I think so. The evidence also shows there was inadequate monitoring of the speed indications as a result of which the continuous loss of speed was not identified, whereupon there was a drop in power, resulting in the aircraft ending up behind the power curve with a steep angle of attack. So they weren't watching what their airspeed was, and that's bad. You know, They ended up too yeah. slow, which just kind of exacerbated their problems. The crew recognized a degree of deterioration in the performance of the aircraft and asked to descend to flight level 310. As the aircraft reached approximately 31,700 feet, there was a fall in engine thrust, at which point the stall warning system was activated together with the stall warning horn. So it's like we said, at 31,700, the stall warnings go off. 
At the point when the stall warning system was activated, the angle of the horizontal stabilizer trim started to gradually increase until it reached full nose up position. So they're, tri- they're even fighting their trim, which is trying to make the nose of the plane go up because it wants to try to maintain its altitude. Mm-hmm. The engines were operating at high revs, producing power seconds before the aircraft collided with the ground. So that's just telling you that the engines were operating normally when they hit the ground. There was no yeah. Yeah. problem there. The financial crisis affecting West Caribbean generated an unfavorable climate for air operations by creating an environment characterized by uncertainty and stress. Mm-hmm. Like we said, distractions. No account was taken either in the flight planning or in the flight dispatching of the limits laid down in the performance tables with regard to takeoff weight, planned flight level, aircraft weight throughout the flight, or propulsion ceiling. This is kind of what you're asking about. Like, isn't it written down in stone how high they should go? Or mm-hmm. like, And yeah, you, there's, there's tables for all of this, but they really didn't pay attention to it when they were planning their flight. Like the crew or the, the, the company, the, uh, who, who didn't pay it? Both. Okay. Both. They call it dispatch. The dispatch who creates the flight plan to give to the crew and the crew when they receive the flight plan and look at it. You know, they, mm. First of all, dispatch should make sure it's good and yeah. they give it to the crew and then the crew should get it, double check it and be like, yes, this is yeah. good. They, was just kind of, they were just kind of rubber stamping, not really giving thought to this specific mm. flight. There's also no evidence that the flight crew were aware of the aircraft's performance limits in the given condition. They were probably also unaware of previous accidents affecting MD-80s. It's just okay, you did a good job of spreading the blame. <laughs> okay, all, thank you. Thank like, you. I, I, I was like, man, man, I was like, the pilot was stressing me out. Now, now I feel for him. Yeah, I can't imagine that stress of like not getting paid for six months. Like, you're a pilot. You're a very trained, skilled professional. And you're still working. Yeah, and you're not getting paid. And you have to get a second job, like, <laughs> yeah. which is robbing you of your sleep, which you need in order to do your main job. And, and, and at six months, is a, I mean, they, they like, uh, I don't know, finance places are like, oh, make sure you have like a good three or six, three to six month buffer of like, in case of an emergency, right? That's that's like the general rule, right? And that that's that's a lot to have. That's that's that is a lot. And he's at that. He's past it. That's yeah. crazy. So yeah, you're, like you like you said, a lot of blame to go around. So given the aerodynamic and performance conditions, the aircraft was flown into a critical situation, which resulted in its losing lift. Mm-hmm. Subsequently, the cockpit resource management and decision making as the emergency progressed was misguided. The reasons for this were as follows: insufficient or inappropriate awareness of surroundings which meant mm-hmm. that the flight crew were not fully aware or aware in time of what was happening in terms of the performance and behavior of the aircraft. So no situational awareness. And also the lack of effective communication between the flight crew, which limited within the decision-making process the possibility of choosing appropriate and timely alternatives and of establishing the relevant priorities in the action which was taken while a critical or emergency situation was developing. So bad communication, which led to bad decision-making. Yeah, You would think if your engines go out. Like if the captain was right, right? Like in his mind, yeah. his engines have flamed out. You would think he would think his his next step should be we need to glide as far as we can. Well, we mm-hmm. need to figure out where we are, glide as far as we can, and see if there's an airfield anywhere in range we can land at. None of that was done. Right? They didn't know where they were. There was no consulting of charts or information. It was just, I'm gonna keep pulling back on the stick. Yeah, it sounds like he just froze up. Mm-hmm. Just pulled up. He shouldn't have turned off the anti-icing. Because he froze up. Oh, Chris, Chris, Chris. <laughs> sorry. I was like almost stopped myself from making it. Uh, I'm sorry. No, no, it's okay. This is why you got best podcast host. <laughs> <I didn't. laughs> so the cause of the accident has been found to have been determined by the failure to take pertinent action to correct the aircraft's entry into a stall. And from the start of the emergency until the collision of the aircraft with the ground, 
the prioritization and execution of procedures were misguided in sequential terms. An operation was initiated outside the limits and parameters laid down in the manufacturer's performance manual in conjunction with inappropriate flight planning, which failed to take into account the climate aspects in addition to, there's so many, <laughs> erroneous and belated uh, interpretation of the loss of power by the aircraft on the part of the crew. So it's just like problem on problem on problem. Yeah. And the evidence indicates that human factors should be classified as the cause of the accident. So it's human factors, but it's you know not only the crew, it's, it's also yeah. flight dispatch, it's the airline, it's everywhere. It's all messed up. Can the um, control tower be... It's not their fault, right? Because they they wouldn't know that the plane was too heavy to be at that flight. No, no, right? They have no idea. Yeah. Okay. It's not on their chart. No, no. They just, you know, yeah. They help the plane route where it needs to go. Okay. So of course there's some recommendations as a result of this flight. Require effective training of flight crew in the use of performance tables, mm -hmm. focusing on a knowledge of the limits applicable when operating an aircraft in flight in order to ensure that the altitude margins laid down in the operations manual are not exceeded, thereby averting high-altitude stalls. We also recommend that dispatchers and all staff involved in the preparation of flight plans be instructed in the aspects associated with their specific working roles and the implications or effects of the performance of the aircraft in various phases of flight. So it's just saying, let's just do better training so that they know the limits of the plane so that they don't get into a high-altitude stall and also the dispatcher should know better than to create flight plans like this. They need better training to avoid situations like this. Yeah. Require the inclusion in flight crew training of recovery from high altitude stalls. And we've seen this before in other incidents where crews need to be trained in how to recover from these high altitude stalls. Mm -hmm. Updating and assessing the financial statements of the airlines operating the public air transport service, not only during the certification process, but also as a process of permanent oversight or continuous monitoring in order to guarantee safe provision of services and maintenance of airworthiness. So just keep an eye on the books of airlines to make sure they're not in a bad financial shape. Who should? Whatever government oversight. I don't know who it is okay. uh, in, you know, in these countries, in Venezuela or Panama. But in general, you know, in, in the United States, it would probably be, you know, either the FAA or NTSB who oversees that. Probably the NTSB. Yeah, so it's like if a, if a airline is in bad financial, they're just like, what would they do? Just say, investigate them or tell them they, they might can't suspend fly their or? license to operate. Yeah. Oh, okay. Require the inclusion in the flight crew training program of a review of the accident and incident statistics in relation to the operation of this aircraft type, especially those linked to the configuration of the autopilot and auto throttle modes. We also recommend it be ensured that the content referring to the description of the MD 80 series aircraft autopilot modes in the flight operation bulletin issued by Boeing be included in the corresponding training manuals and program. So, some kind of general bookkeeping mm -hmm. and safety for this specific plane. Require aircraft operators and aeronautical training centers to step up training in relation to situational awareness, assertiveness, and effective communication within the cockpit. We've talked about this repeatedly. This is kind of, this is very CRM related. Yeah. Crew resource management. Mm -hmm. That kind of ties in. It goes on to say like, in order to bring about definitive change in the operational culture and flight crew, in the course of which open consideration should be given with the professional maturity the aspect requires to the establishment of specific measures and procedures to improve the interchange of ideas between flight crew so decision-making process can be carried out in a timely and appropriate manner without producing obstacles or conflicts of competence during flights and so that agreements, clear and precise positive rules can be established before takeoff for the purpose of ensuring appropriate planning and execution of these flights. This is a long one, but essentially uh -huh. there was a, if you remember, there was a big age gap between the captain and the first officer. So they're talking about kind of like equalizing the playing field so that 
the first officer who's younger doesn't feel intimidated to where he doesn't speak up oh. and doesn't say anything. So it's about like making sure if you have a concern that you voice it and that it's given appropriate consideration. Like even though he's younger, he still put in the time. He's still up there in the cockpit mm-hmm. flying the plane. Well, and he was know? the one who did correctly diagnose yeah. that they were stalling. And that's why like we you need to pay attention to uh, what these, you know, what the pilots are saying. Yeah. So as a result of the crash, West Caribbean Airways was grounded one day after the crash occurred and they went bankrupt October 2005. You know, they I'm no longer surprised. fly. Yeah. Yeah, I mean they they were already in awful financial shape leading up to this and uh that was it for them. Another frustrating one cuz it feels entirely avoidable. There's yeah. no reason that this should have happened at all. Yeah. But that's it. That's pretty much all of this West Caribbean 708. Very frustrating flight. If they had just, you know, when they realized something was wrong, just nose down to gain some airspeed, everything would have been okay. I know. Oh, well, nothing you can do. Yeah. Except for listen to this podcast. So then you <laughs> know. So then you know. For the you, know you, you know, just nose down. Yeah. It's all uh, opposite of, of, you know, normal advice. Keep your nose up or nose oh, yeah. up. Never mind. Never mind. <laughs> Keep your chin down. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, that's it. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll be back again uh, next week with another episode. Uh, don't forget to yeah. follow on social media at Black Box Down Pod. And share this podcast with your friend whose name is one syllable. That's my random suggestion of who you should share. Find a friend with only with a one syllable name, like Jack or or Joe. Joe or uh Chris. Chris. What's a female? Tina. No, that's two. <laughs> I know. I kept thinking, I was like, uh, Mary. No. Uh <laughs> Jill. There you Jill. go. Jill. Yeah. Jill. So that's a, and you'd be like, why? Why are you? Why are you suggesting this podcast? It's like, well, you only have one syllable in your name, and you'd be like, what? That makes no sense. Like, listen to this episode. To it. It'll make sense when you listen to it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Before we go, just one more reminder: don't forget to check out blackboxdownpod.com. We got a new way to directly support this podcast for two dollars and ninety nine cents a month. You get all of our episodes ad free, and you get twenty four hours early access before the general public, and you can keep listening in whatever podcast platform you already listen on. That's like not even a cup of coffee. That's like half of a Starbucks. It's sad that that's true. Coffee can be expensive now, can't it? <laughs> yeah. I guess if you make it at home, it's cheaper. But don't. this is cheaper than going out and buying a cup of coffee somewhere. $2.99. Yeah, with gas prices. That's true. Fuel is like we like to call it. Oh, yeah, yeah. Anyway, go check out blackboxdownpod.com. It's a great way to directly support this podcast. And totally optional. If you don't want to, no sweat. It's totally fine. Keep listening to the podcast. But if you want to, it's there as an option. Thank you. Especially to those who do it. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye. Bye.